Hey everyone, we'll start on the top of the hour, but in the meantime, I shared the lab website and also the science paper and also the free bioarchive version of the paper and the slides on top if you want to, in the meantime, read more about it. The whole group, like three people, not the whole group, but part of the whole group that worked on this project will present. Um, so uh, we will have three people presenting and discussing, which I think will be really interesting. Um, so yeah, I think it will be a really interesting discussion uh, to have a team here. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. We'll still have a few minutes to relax. So um, thanks for coming. And if you think this is interesting, maybe you would like to share the room with people that you know. So thank you. Hi Manas, hi Peter, hi Lup, Lupna and H, thanks for coming. We'll start on top of the hour, but as I said, there's um, resources in the chat to check out in the meantime and also the slides. Yeah, come up Peter, how are you? Don't have much to say related to this, but did you have a recording you could share from the room there about the other lady a couple of days ago oh i thought i sent it to you to email so oh, oh did I? okay I so mean, i can resend it I, again I, I, so how it yeah, works be, the link yeah, is only yeah. accessible so when i send it uh, i'll have to um, dm you because the link for to download it from the uh from the uh, um, aws cloud is only active for like 15 minutes or so so oh. i have to resend it again and then if you click on the link it automatically downloads it to your device yeah it worked it, it worked the last time great but uh, so because i i thought that that was spectacularly interesting and uh, my angle is was slightly different there but from but i think that the uh, yeah so thank oh, you. Oh, was it a different? Oh, maybe it was a different room. Then send me which room, you know. Which it was the one about epigenetics. What was her name? Yao oh, or I something? See. Yeah, now I know. Okay, yeah, yeah, just remind me through message because then after the room, I will, I will do the same thing again. I'll just share oh, it. If, it, if it's only about if it's only valid that short, maybe today is not a good day. I may send you a message tomorrow or something. Then. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank, thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, sure. No problem. No problem at all. <laughs> Hi, Matu. So, Welcome. How are you today? Thank you for coming. 
um, to unmute. Uh, it's all the way on the bottom right. There's a little microphone symbol. If you press on that, we should be able to hear you. If it doesn't work right away, um, it could be that it's the first time you're in a room speaking. Sometimes you have to just restart the app and then the second time it works. Can you can you hear me? Let's see. I wrote in the chat and if you can't hear me it doesn't really it doesn't really help but um let me write you an email. Hi Ganesh, uh, can you hear me? Um, to unmute, it's all the way on the bottom right. There should be a little microphone symbol. And if you press on that, um, yeah. I can't hear you, but are you talking, Ganesh? Oh, me? Yes. Hey, how are you? Okay. I'm doing good. How are you? That's good. You're not by any chance close to Matu, right? Because I can't, you know, she she's not unmuting and it could be that she's the first time in a room speaking. Sometimes you just have to log back in again, like restart the app and then the second time it usually works. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, so if you... Oh, great. Perfect. Because if I email her, I'm not sure if she will see it right away. Well, welcome. And thank you so much for coming. Uh, this is really wonderful that we'll have a whole team coming to discuss here. Uh, I think it will be a really interesting discussion. So. Yeah, thank you for uh, uh, having us here. This is this is really interesting to um, discuss this with community with the with the community, and uh, it's been kind of collaborative work uh, uh, with me, uh, Madhu, and uh, Simon working. I don't know since 20, 2016, I suppose. Oh wow! Yeah. Yeah. So... This is our this is our second paper together. Wonderful! That's a really great collaboration then. Um, yes, yes. And uh, yeah, I will be curious to hear about, you know, how the collaboration came about. Um, but let's start that discussion in a few minutes when everyone okay. is here, when Simon also is here. I added him to the speaker list, so um, it should be, okay. should be fine. Uh, for him that he will be right away up here because if you wouldn't um then you would be first in the audience and for beginners basically it's kind of annoying to, to come yeah. up <laughs> but you've been on clubhouse right so before you have heard other uh, audios so. oh, okay great yeah but it's the first time you're speaking on Clubhouse? Yes, this is the yes, first this time. Is the first time but I'm... Well, it's not really, you don't have to do anything to speak other than having like a profile, you know, to speak. Anyway. Yeah. It's pretty, uh, 
Yeah, I thought, I don't know, when did you start um, using Clubhouse as an app? Is it very recent or was it? After you wrote to us. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah. Yeah, because the app kind of started during COVID, so people were hanging out here. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, I think when it started, I looked at it, and then at that time, you needed invites and everything, so. Oh, yeah, I wish I would have known you earlier. I could have sent yeah. you invites. <laughs> yeah, it was more like media people and so here, so yeah, you needed an invite. So I felt always weird inviting people to speak because mm -hmm. I would have to send them an invite to their cell phone. And I felt like a scammer. Oh, yeah, talk about your research with us, but I need your cell phone number. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But most people did, so just a okay, few give people. Me two oh. minutes. I might have to go troubleshoot mother's uh, phone. Yeah, if I'll she can back. just restart the app, that would be probably the best way. Okay. Or if she's at the university and maybe you're not on the university. She's wifi. down the hall from me. Let me try that. Uh, then you, switching yeah. to cellular data usually works if um, okay, some universities okay. block the interaction on social media. Okay, let me go check hers and come back. Okay. Yeah. Hi, Simon. How are you? Hello. Thank you for coming. For sure. Thanks for inviting us to give this presentation. Yeah, wonderful. And it works. So that's perfect. Are you by any chance on a university Wi-Fi or are you using your cellular? No, I'm on my, uh, I'm working from home today. Ah, okay. Yeah, because... So I'm using my own personal. Okay. So I will recommend to... Yeah, I'm not using the Sierra data. I'm using the Wi-Fi. But from home, right? Because yes, yes. many universities block social media interactions now. So uh, oh. if Matu is on uh, university Wi-Fi, she can be here but she won't be able to speak or hear us, so. Um, oh, that's weird. Yeah, we had this issue before. Um, so uh, yeah, that's the, it's not every university, it really depends, so. Hmm. It's, um, only, it's only through a mobile phone. You don't have any uh, like internet website that you can. Yeah, so there is a desktop version um, app for, for this. Uh, it's mm. Club Deck. It's a little bit more qu uh, complicated, I feel like, for beginners. Um, it has like way more features, like to add like music, for example, and play it directly, or uh, sounds and different recordings, or analyzing the audience. So it's kind of a little bit less intuitive, I feel like. Um, and then you for the recordings it used to be that you have to have the clubhouse app to listen to the recordings but that's not the case anymore which is good so um i usually share then the link to this recording on the website but then also we um we share it on spotify and youtube it kind of began yeah. because the scientist younger scientist she asked me Ah, it would drive up my altmetric score if you would do that, uh, you know, and embed the DOI. So I can oh, start with so, that, and then it became kind of <laughs> <a thing. laughs> huh. 
Yeah. Interesting. So. Yeah, I've I've connected to the Spotify channel to get a sense of how it looks. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, I was kind of surprised. I didn't even think anyone would go on Spotify to listen. To be honest, because mm. it, it's not with the slides, right? If you listen to it on Clubhouse, you can still link, uh, click the link to the slides if the slides are still there. Um, you know, at the clouds uh, spot where where you put it uh, during the replay during the recording. Um, so I kind of felt, uh, you know, I'm doing this more, you know, to drive, to give a little bit something. But then I realized mm. like 2000 people or so downloaded uh, the, the, the audio files. So yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, are, the, are the PowerPoint available on Spotify? That's something I didn't notice. I think no, it's only the, so, the audio recording. Yeah, so, yeah, that's why I thought nobody will care about the spot. It's really just for you know, the altmetric score of people, um, you know, and stuff like that. But yeah, people apparently listen to it on Spotify. So. I see. So the fact that you put on Spotify the DOI increased the altmetric score of the, the yeah, paper Yeah, because cited. it's a podcast file and then YouTube is a video share. So um, it's like I, t I told usually people, oh, we share it again on Twitter on that day. And mm. she said, that doesn't help me. You <laughs> shared it already on Twitter. Uh, yeah. can you, if you record this, can't you put this on a podcast or something? And then I, I made this account. And then, yeah, having a podcast and then YouTube video is a different kind of social media share. So that drives up more the altmetric score than just keeps sharing it on Twitter. Yeah, I see, I see, I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a whole science. <laughs> no. <laughs> Hi, Matu. Thank you so much for coming. Can, of course. Uh, right. Hi, Katarina. Uh, yeah, I ran into last minute issues with my wireless, so I had to switch. But does it work now? Can you hear me? Yes, perfect. Yes. Uh, yeah, hi, sorry about hi, that. No, no problem. We're missing Ganesh now. Um, I think oh, Ganesh sure. is. No, no. Oh, yeah. Everyone's here, so we can start. Um, and people will still keep coming in, um, but we'll just start with introductions and things like sure. that, and then we'll go from there. So, sure. perfect. Welcome everyone to Science Society, and of course, a special welcome to our speaker team today. And before we start, let me just give a brief overview of um, the speakers we have today. So, Matu Kanan, um, um, is assistant professor and principal investigator at the Department of Neuroscience at the University of Minnesota and the Center for Magnetic Resonance Research. And um, she, um, she is member of the medical discovery team on optical imaging and brain science. And she completed her undergrad degree in biochemistry and I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, um, Chennai, India. That's right. And um, her master's in molecular genetics at the University of um, Leicester. I don't know, UK says things for me. Yes. <laughs> in the UK. <laughs> and she obtained her PhD in neurophysiology at the Max Planck Institute uh, of Experimental Medicine and uh, George August University in Germany. And um, during 
her postdoc, she spent time in the lab of Dr. Mike Hiley at Yale School of Medicine in Connecticut, where she studied mechanism of experience-dependent plasticity at um, inhibitory synapses of the cortex um, using slice electrophysiology and optogenetics. And um, then she joined Dr. Vincent's Perrybone's lab uh, for a second uh, postdoc. And uh, there she really um, started working on emerging genetic engineering and neuroscience. And then uh, we have Ganesh Bazan. He's also a principal investigator um, and assistant professor in the Department of Neuroscience and a member of the medical discovery team on optical imaging and brain science um, at the University of Minnesota. And um, he did his undergrad um, in electronic sciences at the University of Madras in India. And he did then his master's in nanoscience at the University of Loughborough, UK. Um, and he did his PhD in mechanical engineering at the Max Planck Institute of Iron Research in Germany. And um, he did then, uh, he did later his postdoc also at Dr. Vincent Perrybon, um lab um, at Yale. And there he designed and built a high throughput semi-automated platform to engineer fluorescent indicators for cortical and subcortical voltage imaging and a dual microscope system to simultaneously image um, odorant response in the dorsal and um, lateral olfactory bulb. <clears throat> and um, then uh, we have Simon Hasisa, who is a basic life research scientist um, at um, a postdoctoral scholar um, in biology um, at uh, Stanford. And he did his um, master in science at the University of Claude Bernard in Lyon and his PhD at the École Normale uh, Supérieure de Cachan. I hope I said that right. Um, yeah, that's correct. <laughs> perfect. And um, yeah, it's such an honor having um, all of you here. Um, and it's really interesting, uh, the team that came basically together uh, to work on this um, really interesting research. So thank you, first of all. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Katerina. I mean, thank you so much for writing to us. And uh, so this is a fairly collaborative work between uh, two large labs. One was uh, our postdoctoral mentors, uh, Dr. Vincent Pierrebon, who couldn't be here today. And this was at the Yale School of Medicine and the John B. Pierce Laboratory. And uh, the other uh, large lab that participated was uh, the lab of uh, Professor Mark Schnitzer, at Stanford and Howard Hughes, and um, and this is in fact a very large group of people. And today we are, uh, the three of us are representing this group. It's going to be uh, Ganesh Vasan who will be talking about uh, the engineering aspect of the work, the probe engineering and the indicators, 
and I'll be talking about how we've been using them to acquire insights in the primary visual cortex, and shortly followed by Simon, who will be uh, speaking from Stanford and talking about uh, the applications in hippocampal CA1. So with that, uh, I'll invite Ganesh to take uh, the mic. <laughs> Um, if it's okay, we usually do like a very short interview to get kind of an idea um, about the scientists that are behind the work. So if it's okay, we have usually a question like, how did you, um, you know, um, I don't know who would like to answer first. How did you figure out you that you want to become a scientist? Um, was it something you always wanted to do or was it yeah. something that came later? maybe a great teacher or professor or parents that forced you to do it or or a great book or something if you if you could give us a little bit of a background i think it's really interesting for people choosing their career or people that are not in science how you know to get kind of a peek behind the curtain thank you Sure, sure. Um, yeah, we could start it in a, a little bit of a leisurely way. So um, I think I got interested when I was in, in my eighth grade. So uh, honestly, it was a science exhibition at school where um, there was one particular exhibit on gene cloning. So that was when Dolly the sheep was cloned. And uh, that kind of caught my attention because there were two words that I didn't know the meaning for. So there was gene and there was cloning, and I had no idea what they meant. So that got me digging into what genetic engineering actually is. And it was uh, extremely insightful to come across the work of, uh, you know, like Vaimodian scientists like uh, Professor George Church. And uh, that's when I got pretty much uh, crazy about this field. And I've been pursuing genetic engineering ever since. And uh, uh, my PhD in uh, neurobiology, rather neurophysiology, in Germany further um, introduced me to the world of neuroscience. And obviously, that is uh, something as fascinating or even more fascinating than genetic engineering. So when I uh, got a chance in Vincent's lab to combine the two uh, techniques, that is genetic engineering with neuroscience, I uh, couldn't be happier. And I think uh, this is where my interests currently lie. So uh, yeah, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you so much for giving us that, um, yeah, that insight to, you know, how, how your path went. Um, I don't know, Ganesh, do, do you want to go next? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, to me, I, I wanted to be many things, probably. So I wanted to be an engineer, I wanted to be a scientist, but I didn't kind of like know what I was, what, what subject. Um, that I was interested in. So I tried many things. As you said, my undergrad was in electronic science. Then I was interested in doing nanoscience. And uh, then during my uh, PhD, uh, I did both kind of like material science and mechanical engineering. But it was at that time I also again became interested. I, I still kind of had an open mind to seeing uh, how can uh, what I, whatever that I've learned in one uh, field uh, can be applied in some other field. Uh, so that's when I kind of came across neuroscience. And uh, after moving here to the US, I kind of applied for many neuroscience labs. And uh, until I found one that was brave enough uh, to hire an engineer uh, to work in neuroscience experiments. And, and uh, Vincent's, uh, Dr. Vincent Pierrepon's lab 
gave me that opportunity where I could start up with some engineering projects uh, while at the same time learning neuroscience. So that's where all of this automated uh, high throughput approaches came in. There was a lot of uh, both mechanical and software engineering work uh, involved in that. But along the way, I was able to learn a lot of neuroscience techniques and uh, uh, use my prior no knowledge in other engineering fields uh, to apply that to neuroscience to try and answer some questions here. Yeah, that's interesting that you came, that you tried to merge fields. And do you think that's kind of the key to make like major discoveries nowadays? Um, where it, you know, like, merge, I mean, you can merge fields by having a big team of different experts, but do you think we also need people that have kind of a broader approach like yeah. that? Yeah. yeah, no, I wouldn't recommend that to everybody because it kind of takes a lot of uh, persistence and uh, long periods of confusion, kind of like uh, not knowing where your main interest lies and uh, it kind of uh, has a lot of challenges. Uh, so for a long time, you don't feel like you're a master of anything, right? So, uh, or you understand anything completely, but uh, uh, for for persistent people, it might still turn out good. But if they just keep at it, uh, they might finally find what they really want to do. And uh, everything that I've that they've picked up along the way will be helpful uh, uh, in whatever they want to do. But but uh, as you said, so some of these can actually be made by real experts in different fields who know um, what they are doing, so they can come together and try to solve a problem. Uh, but there might be some, uh, you know, uh, some of the, uh, I wouldn't call myself a special one, but uh, uh, to say that, you know, you have a little bit of expertise in many fields that you can kind of combine things together. But I wouldn't say that is the key to, you know, becoming a scientist. The key to becoming a scientist can still be just specializing in one particular area and becoming a complete uh, expert at it. Uh, so there's not just a one way uh, to be a scientist, but this can also be a way. There's still hope. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, and Simon, uh, how about you? Thanks. Yeah, so it's um, as, as Madhu and Ganesh were talking, I was thinking about my own journey and it's really not linear. And even like if you ask me, if we go back 20 years ago and you ask me, oh, do you think you're going to be a neuroscientist at Stanford 20 years from now? I say, no way. Um, there is no way. It's like when I was in middle school and high school, I mostly, I, I was mostly better at math, um, terrible in biology and pretty low average in physics. And I was terrible in like French and English and stuff like this. And then end of high school, I, I realized that I had to make a decision about what would be my next step at university or just go working somewhere. So I said, okay, maybe I, I just go uh, with the path that is easiest for me, which is math and, and physics. And I went to engineering schools because that's where I had the highest grades. And then entering my master, uh, master degree and the final six months were dedicated in my engineering school as a, for an um, internship. And it was overlapping with something in my 
personal life where my grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and started bringing some a lot of questions about neuroscience, how the brain is working, how come you can like forget your memories and forget the identity of your own grandchildren and stuff like this. So I say, okay, maybe I do my master's thesis at the interface between uh, nanoscience, where I was nanoscale engineer trained, and uh, and neuroscience, more uh, flavor of neuropsychiatric and neurodegenerative diseases. And that after my master's thesis, everything went well, and my advisor, the two people that soon will became my PhD advisor, offered me a PhD. And, I decided to follow this path and I was mostly working at the nanoscale um, between nanotechnology and uh, nanoparticle tracking and try to understand the uh, neurophysiological basis of, of autism and schizophrenia. But the, the nanoscale and single cell uh, resolution studies were not very fulfilling for me. So I decided to go to a more integrated system and work in, in small animals where the brain is, is fully um, wired and integrated with the whole body and that's where i i found this interdisciplinary lab at stanford from mark schnitzer that also had very strong expertise into developing new technologies for understanding fundamental uh, neurobiological questions and that's it. it he asked me if i wanted to work in this in this project which was voltage imaging and a new technology invented back in the day but uh, fiber optic uh, voltage recording in the freely behaving animal. I'm going to touch a little bit during the talk. And then that's how I embraced the field of uh, voltage imaging. And I found it, uh, I spent like six or seven years now on this topic. And I had the pleasure to collaborate with Madhu and Ganesh. And it's very fascinating. I think there's tremendous, like uh, a pretty big value for this technology in the coming decades. Yeah, thank you for, for that story. And that is also mixed with a very personal story uh, so yeah i think it's always very interesting to learn how paths were made um at, in science or in any other profession but uh, since we are science society i think in science and um um yeah it's wonderful that uh, people found their way and path and i think it's it's really a privilege to work in something uh, we are passionate about and, and actually like and <laughs> so uh, yeah thank you for sharing those stories with us and now the stage is yours for the presentation and everyone the presentation is the link is posted on top so feel free to follow along with the speakers and uh, yeah the stage is yours thank you great thank you Katarina I think probably Ganesh would like to get started Yes. Um, oh, I realize we don't have slide numbers on these. Okay. So uh, I hope everyone's able to open the slides and uh, uh, maybe even start it as a slideshow. Um, so uh, our work started uh, by, you know, this trying to answer this question of how do we record what the neurons are doing? So there are, I mean, by by saying, you know, trying to record what the neurons are doing, I mean, one of the primary ways neurons in the brain communicate with each other is through electrical signals. And uh, there are many ways to record this. 
So, um, you know, if, if anyone's interested, there's a there's a very uh, nice review from uh, Anne Churchland's uh, lab that was published last year that goes through all of these uh, techniques. And, uh, you know, um, many, many electrophysiologists, they kind of try to record this activity in single neurons by uh, patching a tiny microelectrode uh, to a neuron. So this is a glass pipette that is supposed to have a very fine tip. And uh, using this, you can, um, you know, kind of poke a neuron and uh, uh, try to open its membrane and try to record the potential electric field potential across a neuron's membrane. And whenever neurons, uh, you know, uh, uh, membrane potential changes, you can record these tiny changes uh, uh, in membrane potential. And uh, but the main problem with this is that uh, after this, you're pretty much killing the neurons. You can't record from this neuron, uh, you know, forever. And uh, um, it, it's very, very uh, tedious and it doesn't give you that many neurons that, that you can record from in a given day. Um, and there are other ways to record electric, uh, um, electrical activity in neurons. So you can have uh, what is known as uh, extracellular uh, um, uh, field potential recording electrodes, where uh, you kind of uh, insert a microelectrode uh, uh, into the mouse brain or like whatever organism you're trying to record the activity from. And uh, you can record the extracellular uh, uh, field potential from uh, a large number of neurons. And uh, this way it gives you many neurons to kind of like record the activity from. But then again, the problem is uh, um, this is also a little bit damaging. And uh, if the electrode moves, you won't be recording from the same neuron again. And uh, given that there are many, many types of neurons in the brain, you won't really know what type of neuron you're recording from. Um, so to solve these problems, you can you know, try to label your neurons with a fluorescent protein and uh, then use that uh, somehow to locate which neuron you're recording from. And uh, from that, it kind of branched out into using those fluorescent proteins it itself to record the activity from neurons. And uh, um, in this sense, you have, uh, um, you know, um, uh, fluorescent protein uh, indicators that either directly re report your uh, electrical activity in neurons or use some other uh, surrogate, like you know uh, another ion, for instance. Uh, there are indicators that report calcium concentrations in neurons that you can use to uh, interpret activity um, in neurons. So from this was born the two major classes of uh, fluorescent indicators, the calcium and uh, voltage indicators, and they have major differences between them. And uh, um, the the main difference is that uh, is what do they report? What do they what do you use as a readout? So in calcium indicators, as the name indicates, uh, you're trying to look at the calcium concentration um, inside a neuron, and the, the calcium uh, concentration kind of undergoes a spike inside a neuron whenever there is an action potential. Uh, so that is what you use to uh, report, um, you know, record calcium activity in neurons. Uh, on the other hand, for voltage indicators, you have a protein that is sitting directly in the membrane of a neuron. So you can use that to directly record um, the underlying electrical activity 
And because of this, uh, the voltage indicators uh, tend to be much faster in their response compared to the calcium indicator, which rather has a very, very slow dynamics. And um, you can also have sensitivity to uh, sub-threshold events because this calcium spike primarily happens after uh, an action potential is generated. So if you don't have an action potential, you don't have a calcium spike. Uh, so you can use a voltage indicator to record these uh, uh, sub-threshold activities, activity that is not spike-driven. Um, and uh, but the main um, uh, you know problem for voltage indicators is because of technological limitations of you know the need to record at very high speeds. Um, the scalability is pretty limited. You can record simultaneously only from a handful of neurons, whereas in calcium recordings, you can you know, run at a normal video rate of like 30 frames per second. So you can record from a large population of neurons. You can record even to about a thousand neurons uh, in, in behaving mice. And uh, also for calcium recordings to go in deeper layers, um, scientists use the technique called two photon excitation uh, to record from deeper layers, and uh, the calcium indicators are better suited for this uh, multi-photon imaging technique to record in deeper layers. Uh, whereas, again, because of the need for speed, voltage indicators don't have such a technique yet that can be widely adopted by many labs. So, um, to kind of go to what started this story, um, Mark's lab published, uh, Professor Mark Schmitzer's lab at Stanford, um, they published uh, a novel class of voltage indicators called the FRET opsin indicators uh, using the using um, the opsin protein from uh, um, the, uh, the acetable area. And uh, using that, they combine that with uh, a very bright green fluorescent protein called M-neon green. So in this case, uh, the way the voltage indicator works is through uh, the FRET mechanism where the absorption profile of the opsin that is sitting inside the membrane is modulated by the changes in the membrane potential. And because of the absorption profile changes, uh, during FRET, uh, whatever light that is uh, coming out of uh, the fluorescent protein, a part of it is transferred directly to the opsin uh, through fluorescent resonant energy transfer or FRET. And uh, the membrane potential modulates the opsin's absorption profile, which in turn modulates the FRET efficiency between the two proteins. So whenever you have a depolarization, um, you have less light that you can collect from the fluorescent protein because more light is transferred to the opsin through FRET. Uh, and this process is near instantaneous. So whenever there is a membrane potential change within a, a millisecond, this FRET uh, process is completed and you can record those underlying electrical activity as very fast fluorescent transients and uh, you get about a 10 percent change in fluorescence whatever you're collecting in your camera um, in, uh, during these uh, action potential events and this was one of the first indicators that uh, was able to demonstrate uh, recording of these electrical activities, uh, not just in, in vitro, but also in vivo in uh, mice. That was a, a very, very big uh, feat at that time. Um, at the same time, uh, in the lab of Dr. Vincent Pierrevon at Yale, we were trying to be create better voltage indicators uh, through protein engineering, because whenever you combine these two uh, proteins, the 
voltage indicator and the fluorescent protein, when you put them both together, uh, most often they don't work very well. So you need to perform a lot of protein engineering work to uh, find something that works really good for your setup. And uh, this is quite tedious uh, because you have to create single point mutation in the protein DNA sequence. And uh, as I showed before, you have to perform probably patch clamp electrophysiology where you, you know, um, uh, record the activity from a neuron using a, a glass micropipette. And uh, doing this one cell at a time for each mutation uh, is very, very tedious. And uh, um, you won't be able to analyze the ent entire mutation space if you were doing this manually. So that time when I joined the lab, we were interested in creating some sort of an automated solution to create hundreds of mutations uh, in, a, in any given day so that we can find that one mutation uh, that improves the sensitivity much sooner uh, in within, within months uh, rather than years. Right. So we, along with uh, Dr. Kanan, uh, we created this pipeline of both uh, creating large libraries of, uh, you know, mutated DNA from whatever pilot construct we started and uh, simultaneously perform uh, high throughput fluorescent assays where we express these mutant libraries in um, some sort of uh, easily uh, cells that you can easily maintain in the lab and go in with a field electrode, stimulate electrical activity in these cells and record high-speed video um, uh, in, in, your, in your regular fluorescence microscope. Um, so for this, we created the high-throughput platform, as you can see in uh, slide seven, where we came up with kind of a unique spring-loaded uh, electrode design uh, that you can reliably use to, you know, uh, deliver this field stimulation well after well and uh, because you have to move around and uh, in your microscope and then make sure that your electrode uh, doesn't crush into your microscope or your plate there was a lot of engineering uh, uh, that was involved in this and this screening takes about two hours to complete so you have to keep the cells healthy during that time so we would need to maintain uh, a, a human environment um, so we were able to uh, achieve all of these and create a platform that was capable of testing, um, you know, uh, at least four 96 well plates, which is about 400 constructs in a single day. And uh, to perform these fluorescence assays, we use what is uh, called an excitable human embryonic kidney cells. Uh, these are from the lab of uh, Dr. Adam Cohen uh, at Harvard. And they engineered special types of uh, uh, human embryonic kidney cells uh, that have sodium and potassium channels added in. So these kind of behave like pseudo neurons uh, where they will have at a particular density, they will have uh, spontaneous electrical uh, activity. So they will spontaneously depolarize and uh, at a sufficient density, they will even form these spirals that keep going on and on. So if you're able to play the video uh, on slide eight, you will see these cells expressing um, arc light, uh, one of the earlier uh, kind of like leaders of this voltage uh, indicator uh, uh, group. And uh, so we use these kind of cells for, to perform our fluorescence assays. And uh, 
once we express these DNA libraries, we also have uh, another fluorescent tag. So in case your mutation kills your voltage indicator fluorescence, you still need some other way to uh, make sure that you did have expression in your cells, right? So we have a nucleus marker to identify um, these cells. And uh, in our fluorescence assay in each well, um, you, know, you move your well plate in, into your optical path, and then it goes through, let's say, a grid of 16 four by four uh, fields of view and identifies the top four fields of view to make sure that you have you know, a good field of view with a large enough number of cells. Because if you randomly go into a well, the chances are high that you might have a region where there aren't that many cells. Uh, so you want to kind of look around uh, and find um, a field of view that has the maximum number of cells. And then you record your high-speed video and then you identify the number of the cells in a, in each field of view and then extra, extract their uh, uh, mean fluorescence in each frame. And uh, once you compute the change uh, in fluorescence, both before and uh, after your field stimulation, this percentage of change in fluorescence is what you're interested in. And uh, let's say you start with a probe that has this percentage somewhere around 20%. You're hoping to find a mutation that increases it to 30% or 40%. Uh, and uh, one point to note is that all of these voltage indicators uh, work by decrease in fluorescence. That means they start at the resting fluorescence, and then whenever there is a depolarization in neuronal activity, they decrease their fluorescence because of the FRET mechanism that I uh, explained before. And in slide 10, you can see what kind of data we get. So if you have a 96 wells uh, of uh, mutant DNA expressed in these cells, and you go in and uh, apply field stimulation in these wells and recognize the activity, this is the kind of data uh, that you get. And we generate about a terabyte of data per plate. And uh, if you're screening thousands of plates, you won't have space to store all of them. So we have to also rapidly analyze all of this data and uh, keep only uh, the fluorescence values that you extract, and we will rapidly delete all of the data the video data that we collected. So both the acquisition and analysis happens uh, simultaneously. So pretty much in two hours, you have the entire result from the plate ready for you. Um, so to see, okay, now we have all of the platform work completed. Uh, so now what did we do with these, with this high throughput uh, screening approach? So as I explained before, Mark's lab was, uh, um, uh, had just, uh, published ACE M Neon, uh, where they com uh, combined ACE Opsin along with an M Neon green fluorescent protein to create a very bright green voltage indicator that was capable of recording single spikes. And uh, we were interested in creating uh, red and even far red voltage indicators at that time, mainly because uh, the longer wavelengths have uh, less scattering and have better penetration uh, to deeper regions of the brain. So we were interested in creating red versions of, uh, uh, you know, well-performing voltage indicators. So as soon as ASM Neon came out, we thought, why not uh, replace the M Neon green fluorescent protein with a bright red fluorescent protein, uh, or in this case, M Ruby three, uh, that was again published uh, sometime in uh, uh, 2016. So uh, we didn't have success right away, as I mentioned before. So we still had to perform a lot of uh, protein engineering and uh, do high throughput screening to improve the sensitivity to be on par with ASM Neon. So in slide 12, if you can see, we were able to record uh, very fast 
uh, spikes with uh, this new red voltage indicator uh, in both culture and uh, cultured neurons and slices. So this new red voltage indicator we call uh, Varna, uh, which means color uh, in, in uh, I suppose, Sanskrit. And uh, it expands the voltage activated red neuronal activity monitor, which was just a happy coincidence. Uh, so, um, as I said, we were we were interested. In, I mean, what good is a voltage indicator if you can't record spikes uh, in behaving animals in vivo? Because it's all well and good if you can record them in vitro and in slices, but nobody's going to use it if you can't really take them to in vivo recordings in mice. So we continued with our protein engineering approach. And at the end of it, we not only improved uh, um, ASM Neon and uh, Varnum to create the second generation indicators, ASM Neon 2 and Varnum 2, we also identified positive variants of these two indicators. And by positive variants, I mean they have increase in their fluorescence response. So instead of being a minus 30% change in fluorescence, now they are plus 30%. And uh, because these are kind of like modular indicators where you can remove the fluorescent protein from uh, you know, one probe and replace it with the red indicator, as I showed before, these mutations are also somewhat transposable. So if you flip the polarity in the green indicator, you can use the same mutations to reverse the polarity in the red indicator. So, um, and uh, these all four indicators have uh, really good kinetics. Uh, they are ultra fast, their response time is, uh, um, for ASM Neon 2, uh, Varnum 2, and the positive indicators, which we now call positive ACE or PACE, and positive ACE in red or PACER. Uh, so all four of them have really good kinetics that you can use to record single spikes um, in vitro. And so we wanted to test their performance in vivo now, because that's what we were all aiming for. We were not able to do that for many, many years. And that's what all uh, um, the labs that were developing voltage indicators were aiming for. And uh, so just like ASM Neon, ASM Neon 2 had even better sensitivity uh, for, for recording spikes in vivo in mice. And uh, previously we were able to record maybe just from one or two cells, but in this case, because of the improved sensitivity, we were able to record from over 50 cells uh, in a single field view. And uh, uh, this this was a major uh, uh, achievement uh, for us because now you can start doing some meaningful experiments because now you can start recording from not just one or two cells like what electrophysiologists do, but you can start recording from you know 50, 60 cells uh, uh, in, in awake behaving mice. So not just the negative uh, indicator, ASM Neon 2, and in slide 16, if you see even the positive indicator, PACE is also capable of recording spikes uh, with you know, superior sensitivity in awake behaving animals. So now this gave us an idea. Now you have two indicators or like four indicators. If you look at slide 17, all four indicators, you can record spikes in vivo in awake behaving mice. Um, so normally if you were to record, as I said, if you were to record uh, you know, activity from multiple neuron types, you need to know, you know uh, which type of neuron you're recording your activity from. You would typically combine a green and red indicator together and perform a dual color imaging, right? This is what uh, uh, neuroscientists have done. Even if you're labeling just tissue, not even recording activity, to, if you want to differentiate 
what you're you know imaging you would usually separate them by the spectral color spectral wavelength and uh, you know you go blue green red infrared so you kind of differentiate uh, by the color of the fluorescent protein you use to tag whatever you're interested in recording um, so in this case now we have two indicators uh, the negative green asm neon and the ne positive green uh, phase um, that can potentially be combined to record activity from uh, two cell types where you can differentiate them based on their polarity. So if, if you look at slide 18, this shows how it works. So you have a double transgenic animal and you perform conditional expression of these two indicators in a Cree and uh, a flip, flip um, uh, recombinase mouse. And uh, you can then perform your uh, voltage imaging in a single color channel, just a regular GFP uh, fluorescence microscope. And uh, finally, in, in uh, analysis, you can identify which direction your uh, voltage transients are. So if they are negative, then you can say this is coming from ASM Neon 2. And uh, you used ASM Neon 2 to label a particular cell type. So this spike recording should be coming from this cell type. Same way for PACE, you see more positive spikes in your trace. So you say, okay, this trace should be from uh, you know pace voltage indicator and you use that to label this particular cell type so you sh this should this trace should be coming from this cell type so in slide 19 if you look at it if you can play the video this is what it looks like in practice so you perform a single channel voltage imaging and you get about you know uh, uh, 20 to 30 cells and you can simply separate these two groups of cells based on which direction uh, their spikes are and uh, we are we were quite excited to try this. This took a um, lot of planning and you know which cell types we try and all of those things. Uh, but we were really, really happy when this finally worked. And we thought, okay, now we have a very, very powerful tool to not just look at activity from you know single cell types, but actually start performing some local circuit computations in mice as they are doing some sort of behavior. And uh, you will hear a lot more about it from uh, Dr. Kanan and uh, uh, Dr. Aziza when they talk about their behavioral experiments in visual cortex and hippocampus. With that, I'll have Madhu take over from the next slide. Thank you, Ganesh. Uh, I don't know if Katarina has any remarks here. Or any questions from anyone? Um, yeah, let me um, let me check in the chat. So far, I think it seems um, like there are no questions from the audience. Um, I I could just comment that it's really impressive. Um, you know the time um, uh, resolution you have, and also um, the you know this um, this this voltage indicators, how uh, well you you know the 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 signals are aligned with um, the the recordings like the the electrophysiology recordings, it's really impressive. And um, do you for for coming up with these indicators, these genetic indicators, um, did you uh, beforehand maybe this could be a question from the audience. 
did you beforehand what 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 work did you do to prepare this to make them so efficient and to work so well was it modeling maybe before did you analyze the structure or um, did you just do trial and error basically and then come up with this specific ones a bit of both mainly because um, you know how these voltage indicators work so they mainly work through the fret mechanism which is transferring of fluorescence uh, energy from the fluorescent protein to the offset protein so this means that they both have to be together so your first point of engineering would be uh, the linker protein between your opsin and your fluorescent, the linker region between your opsin protein and your fluorescent protein. So that was the first point that we targeted. And uh, then, you know, in the opsin protein, you know, uh, what what are the uh, amino acid residues that are important for, you know, uh, I mean, the opsin protein is mainly a channel protein, right? So its job is to move charge from, uh, you know, one side of the protein to the other side. So, you know, the amino acid residues that are involved in this kind of a charge transport. So you then start targeting those positions uh, that are important for this charge transport. So most of our improvements actually came from targeting just these two regions. And then you have the chromophore in the opsin that is going to absorb whatever light that comes out of uh, the fluorescent protein. And there are certain residues that the chromophore would interact with. Uh, so you do get some amount of insight on which positions to target. Uh, not just based on the structure, but also on the function of different residues uh, in in either the fluorescent protein or the opsin or the region that's linking them together. Oh yeah, please go ahead, Matt. Yeah, uh, no, I would also add that. Uh, so the first time we found varnum. Uh, the fret efficiency wasn't optimal. And until then, the entire field had been mutating only the fluorophore. Nobody had actually thought about mutating the voltage sensor itself. And uh, so one evening when Ganesh and I were actually testing the very first version of Varnum, uh, we were wondering how we can actually improve the sensitivity. It wasn't going to work if we were mutating the fluorescent protein. So um, Ganesh uh, offhandedly suggested uh, that we should probably redshift uh, I mean, uh, no, we should probably blue shift the red fluorescent protein so that there is a better overlap between the absorption of ACE and the emission of MROB3. So that uh, it initially was kind of like shocking to me for such a bold proposition. But then uh, when I dug up a little bit of uh, information from the past, it seemed like there was another opsin from another species of bacterium known as Gloeobacter, where they had actually done just that. By a single mutation, they were able to uh, change the wavelength, the emission properties of a fluorophore and of the opsin. So what we were able to do was by mutating the opsin in a particular residue, we were able to redshift it so that its uh, absorption better aligns with the emission of um, MROB3. So um, I think that was the very first time. So you mean time. I said to redshift the opsin? Right. Redshift the opsin, exactly. Exactly. Uh, you sorry. said I wanted to blue shift the fluorescent protein. Oh, so no, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, I'm mixing things up. So I want, yes, it, you suggested that we redshift the opsin. So we mutate the opsin, the voltage sensor. So um, uh, there was, yeah, there was another species uh, of opsin from another bacterial strain where, um, yes, a, mute, a single point mutation actually uh, redshifted the opsin's absorption. 
So when we did the same thing with ACE, we were, I don't know, for some reason, we found that the sensitivity actually improved. And that was a single point mutation uh, at 81, position 81 uh, in the opsin. So that was the first, um, uh, what do I say, the first time we uncovered a way of tuning the sensitivity. And the other, when we uncovered uh, the positive variance, that was actually a serendipitous uh, what do I say, serendipitous uh, discovery, so to speak. So it was in a high throughput platform that two mutations in the ACE flipped uh, the polarity of the responses, and we weren't even uh, hoping to see that happen. And uh, it was around the time that um, another group at Genelia, they also found a similar variant. So we were uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, waiting to develop this idea, but then they went ahead and published it as a reversal. So they beat us to it. Uh, and uh, But nevertheless, that was a serendipitous uh, discovery and we hadn't strategically uh, lined up um, mutations to flip the polarity. It just happened because of our screening platform. And our screening platform was actually, because of the way it was set up, it was automated. Uh, it was able to identify these positive variants as well uh, without having any kind of um, uh, algorithmic uh, monitoring of uh, changes. So I think uh, there was a mix of both. In one hand, it was stra strategy and some literature search that helped us find these different mutations. On the other hand, it was just uh, serendipity. It just accidentally happened when we used a high-throughput high approach. And I think that's why, as Ganesh uh, mentioned, a high-throughput approach is probably essential. Otherwise, it would take years for us to identify a variant that is uh, actually going to you know, have an effect on voltage sensitivity. So uh, with that, uh, um, yes. Yeah, that's, uh, if I get to, it's very impressive because I worked for a while as a postdoc on the Clomelion project in George Augustine's lab to make it more uh, sensitive. It's a chloride indicator. And um, and we tried many different ways and, and we had also these different approaches just analyzing the different structures with different mutations and um, it's also FRET, it also uses FRET. So uh, and we use different strategies, but chloride concentrations are very low. Uh, so it's kind of, and then we try to tag it to different uh, inhibitory receptors and so on. So yeah, it's quite an achievement. So congratulations again. And yeah, sorry for interrupting, please go ahead. No problem. Um... Yeah, so uh, that was when I kind of joined the lab. So this was uh, after Ganesh had set up the high throughput platform. So how I came into the picture, I was uh, uh, working at uh, the lab of Mike Higley. And uh, uh, that's where I was interested in understanding the role of interneurons. So um, if, yeah, if the audience is familiar, so uh, there are two large populations of neurons in the brain. So you have excitatory neurons, which uh, get activated and which uh, activate other neurons to which they are connected. And then you have uh, a, a set of neurons that are called inhibitory neurons in the sense that they suppress the activation of their synaptic targets. So, uh, but the problem is the two types of, um, the two categories of neurons are not equally represented in the brain. So you have a about 85% of the neurons are excitatory, whereas only 15% of the neurons are inhibitory. But then their role has has been uh, is no less important. In fact, it is um, uh, some sort of 
abnormal active abnormal dynamics in these interneurons that seem to create a lot of uh, neurological diseases and psychiatric illnesses. So it's just that they have been understudied, but their role is equally, if not more significant than excitatory neurons. So I was interested in looking at these inhibitory neuronal uh, dynamics uh, at Mike Higley's lab, but then uh, we were doing patch clamp electrophysiology and there was no easy way to identify interneurons in slices. So pyramidal neurons, that is the excitatory neurons had these fascinating large pyramidal cell bodies. So you can very easily identify them in slices, approach them with your pipette and, you know, um, patch clamp. But then that was not so for interneurons. And the other problem that comes into the picture is interneurons are vastly heterogeneous. So there's not a single population of interneurons to, for you to say, okay, I've understood interneurons because I know this is how they work. Interneurons are so very many and they are very diverse. So it is it is important that you understand the role of each of these interneuron types. So that's how we come into the concept of subtypes. So it becomes more and more challenging to understand their role. And uh, with these genetically uh, encodable indicators, it becomes easier for you to identify the role of individual subtypes because now you can target these indicators to individual subtypes that express a selective genetic marker. So for example, um, there are interneurons that exclusively express a particular uh, calcium binding protein known as parvalbumin. So these, uh, so if you use a parvalbumin promoter in your uh, genetically encodable indicator, you can drive your indicator expression exclusively in the subset of parvalbumin interneurons. So that made me kind of attractive, uh, attracted to like optical, genetically encoded optical approaches. And because I did have a background in molecular biology, it was easy for me to fit in and, you know, participate in the protein engineering um, aspect uh, that was going on in Vincent's lab. And uh, together with Ganesh's platform, it was just, you know, rigorous uh, screening, one screening after another. And then we uh, validated these constructs for the first time in uh, using in utero electroporation. So we didn't even have to go all the way to make a virus and inject an animal. What we did was as soon as we found a DNA-based variant that was having a large enough voltage sensitivity, we simply injected them in embryonic mice. We uh, gave them brief electric pulses and delivered it into the embryonic brain. And then we sectioned the mouse, uh, mouse's brain once the animal was born and old enough. And we looked at the fluorescence responses in neurons. So that was a, a kind of a quicker approach to uh, uh, validate these constructs early on, even before we went ahead and made viruses. So um, that's how I got into the entire uh, engineering aspect as well. But then eventually my goal was to be able to use these genetically encoded indicators to look at activity among interneurons and distinct populations of interneurons. So um, that's how I'm actually, uh, I mean, if you look at um, slide 21, that's where uh, the story begins, where we started using our newest generation of indicators to understand voltage dynamics in genetically identified populations of neurons in the primary visual cortex. So these are all uh, experiments in live mice. So the way we conduct these experiments is we make adeno-associated viruses out of the DNA that encodes the voltage indicator, and we inject the mouse's brain with these uh, AAVs, adeno-associated viruses, and the mouse begins to express 
uh, these indicators in the brain. And then we implant a tiny cover slip wherever we inject it in the cortex. And so that we can, you know, uh, now um, look at it as if it were a slide under a microscope objective lens. So the, uh, so the mouse is like head fixed so that there is no motion artifact when we do the imaging. And uh, there is a CMOS camera that is uh, trying to obtain pictures and it is in the optical path. So you're uh, collecting all of the fluorescence data right from the cortex in the mouse as it is performing different behavioral tasks. So uh, because we are studying the primary visual cortex, we are obviously interested in uh, how the neurons respond to visual stimuli. So uh, one fascinating thing about uh, the primary visual cortex is that the pyramidal neurons, the primary output neurons of the visual cortex, they exhibit uh, um, an enormous degree of uh, selectivity to features, like visual features, like orientation, direction, tuning, and uh, contrast responses, etc. So the first thing we did was to see whether this is a viable approach to see that kind of tuning in the pyramidal neurons. So. Uh, what you see is an example in in uh, uh, slide 21. Uh, you see the tuning responses of pyramidal neurons to uh, the arrowheads, that, that is, uh, the drifting gratings that are going in a certain orientation. And you see that the responses are highly selective and the neurons are spiking only for uh, gratings that are going in a certain direction and not to gratings going in the opposite direction. So uh, that goes to say two things. First thing is uh, the neurons are, of course, selective. Uh, in their uh, activation dynamics. And second, our, our approach is viable. So it is able to uh, tweak out these selective activation patterns and it is not giving some noise signals. So, um, but then uh, what I, the question I was trying to understand was uh, the participation of interneuron types. So uh, aside from visual tuning properties, uh, the primary visual cortex is also uh, heavily modulated by context which means um, an external cue or an internal behavioral state. For instance, when, for instance, depending on whether the animal is at a resting state or is awake or alert or running, uh, the responses are heavily changing. The firing rates are heavily changing. And uh, this kind of an increase in volume or increase in the firing rates is what is known as response gain. And it's found to be some sort of an adaptive process. Like for instance, when an animal is stressed or when an animal is running and uh, agitated or aroused, there is just more activity. And uh, so I want to, I, my question was to understand whether interneurons play a role in this. So is there uh, a particular way that uh, the interneurons are uh, maybe just not uh, inhibiting excitatory neurons as much? And is that causing, uh, you know, an increase in activity or is there a different mechanism? So um, in slide 22, you actually see how these pathways are formed from like long distance anatomical regions. So you have two different regions that are called the basal forebrain and locus ceruleus. So these are all forming diffuse projections to uh, the neurons in the visual cortex, and uh, they all kind of encode um, stress-related signals or changes in uh, arousal and so on. And my question was to try and understand what's going on in V1, in the primary visual cortex, when an animal is, for instance, changing from a rest state to a state of arousal. So in figure 23, this is the schematic of the experiment. So we had... Uh, 
uh, we we injected our indicator that is packaged into an AAV virus into the mouse's visual cortex using a Cree-recombinase strategy, which is a kind of a conditional expression strategy, so that uh, the the indicator was expressed exclusively in one subtype of neurons in the V1. And then the mouse was mounted on a head post and we had access to the injected region by a cover slip and it was allowed to run on a wheel. And we were also uh, delivering a brief air puff that was kind of inducing a state of alertness in the mouse. And we were monitoring uh, the pupil diameter. So uh, traditionally it's been found that your pupil dilates during alertness and which is kind of uh, intuitive as well, right? So. Uh, when we are alert, we are obviously, you know, uh, th there is an increased uh, systemic response. So we are we are paying attention to whatever is being said, for instance. So uh, we are able to track these behavioral metrics. And on the right side, you actually see how uh, on arousal, which is on air puff delivery at point zero, at time zero, there is uh, increased dilation of uh, the pupil. And there is also coincidental locomotory effects. So the mouse starts running in response to the air puff. So all of these are a signal a change in behavioral state. So what we were doing now is in the next slide, you can see recording from uh, uh, indicator expressing neurons. So the neurons are expressing uh, the voltage indicator, but in different subsets of neurons, one at a time. So in pyramidal neurons, in, an, in a population of interneurons that are expressing a particular protein known as VIP, another population of interneurons expressing another protein called NDNF, another population expressing um, SST. So these are defined populations of interneurons that are targetable by means of their selective expression of certain genes. So you're looking at uh, spikes that are being obtained and if you see the red dotted line, that's where the air puff is being delivered. So you can look at how spiking changes from rest and then during arousal. And you note that there are uh, subpopulations of cells within each population that either increase their activity or suppress their activity. And because we acquire data from like hundreds of cells at a time, we can quantify these different changes. So in uh, slide 25, you're able to see the fraction of neurons that are increasing their activity, the fraction of neurons that are facilitated versus the fraction of neurons that are suppressed in response to the air puff. And so it appeared like globally, the, uh, this arousal that was induced by air puff increases the spontaneous activity of multiple neuron types. So it didn't seem to have a selective neuron type effect. So our question was to understand whether our uh, approach can tease apart the role of individual interneurons. So the, the nicest way we could do that was to look at interneuronal subtypes side by side. And to get that kind of side by side comparison, we used the duplex strategy that Ganesh uh, uh, introduced you to. So uh, we tried and uh, expressed two indicators at a time, the negative and the positive polarity indicators to two different populations of interneurons and simultaneously recorded from two populations. And we inferred uh, the population identity by the polarity of the optical spike waveform. So here we use conditional expression strategies that use a Cree-recombinase driver line or a flip-recombinase driver line, and we make indicators that are Cree-dependent or flip-dependent. So that Cree-dependent indicator lands in um, 
the lands in a particular subset of cells that express three recombinase and the flip dependent indicator lands in a subset of cells that are expressing the flip recombinase. So that is some sort of an intersectional strategy. So uh, again, going back to the next slide, which is a repeat of what Ganesh showed. So you have two populations that are now expressing two different indicators. And by the virtue of the polarity of the spike form, you can identify these, uh, identify the uh, population itself. So what we did was uh, went on to employ this duplex strategy in two subsets at a time. So in uh, slide 28, you have uh, the two variants, ACE, neon 2 and PACE being expressed in NDNF interneurons and VIP interneurons respectively. And we are performing duplex recordings. So what you can do in these kind of experiments is try and understand whether there is any kind of correlation between the activation dynamics of the two populations because you are simultaneously acquiring data from them. So uh, what the graph shows is the level of uh, synchronous activation within each population and between the two populations. So um, uh, the green plot, for instance, uh, shows correlation coefficients between neighboring pairs of cells uh, for the NDNF population. The blue plot shows the correlation coefficient for pairs of cells within the VIP population, and the red plot shows uh, the correlation coefficient between pairs of cells of the two different populations, NDNF and VIP. So, uh, and you see that there is a high degree of synchronous activation dynamics for NDNF, even more so for VIP, whereas uh, the correlated activity is very weak between the two populations, between NDNF and VIP. And um, we also quantified this as a population, at the population level, that is what is seen in uh, slide 29. So you basically don't see that the two populations having any kind of correlated activity. And uh, we also did the same thing for different subsets of uh, different pairs of neuronal populations for pyramidal neurons and VIP. And once again, we saw no sort of correlated activity between the two populations. Whereas if you go to slide 32, the story actually became interesting. So um, we expressed ASM neon 2 and PACE in SST interneurons and VIP interneurons simultaneously, and we performed duplex recordings in these running animals. And we found that both SST and VIP interneurons exhibited a high degree of synchronized activity. And when you looked at the correlation coefficients between the two populations, there was a strong negative correlated behavior, which means that uh, every time an SST interneuron fires, a VIP interneuron stops firing, and every time a VIP interneuron starts firing, a neighboring SST interneuron stops firing. So that was a kind of a mutually antagonistic behavior. And um, this was extremely, uh, I mean, this was another level interesting when we looked at how these dynamics change during rest state and during a state of arousal after air puff delivery. And that's the data we uh, see in slide 33. So you see that uh, while under normal conditions, baseline conditions, SSD and VIP cells already exhibit a negatively correlated activity. When you deliver a brief air puff, uh, the, the mouse changes state to a state to arousal. This kind of negative, active, uh, negative correlation becomes even, even more enhanced. So there is a further increase in the correlated, uh, the negatively correlated dynamics between the two populations. So. Um, I, yeah, to illustrate this in the form of a video, if you can play uh, the video in slide 34, you can actually see 
how the how the dynamics of spiking between the two populations is negatively correlated. So every time SSD into neurons fire, VIP into neurons are suppressed and vice versa. And this becomes even more prominent as the pupil dilates, which is when the mouse switches state from resting to arousal. So what, what is the consequence of this kind of antagonism for the circuit is something that is uh, still a, a longstanding question. But then what we'd like to highlight today, the take home is that using this duplex technology, using the two different polarity indicators, you can simultaneously observe the spiking dynamics of two subtypes of interneurons uh, in, in a manner that has never been possible before. So you can actually un un understand the uh, relative roles of these interneurons. So it is, it is no longer a challenge to be able to uh, record from identified interneurons. So hopefully uh, the technique would enable us to see how these interneuronal uh, activity dynamics change during normal versus disease states. And as I said, inhibition plays a very important role in a number of disorders, including neuro uh, degenerative diseases, psychiatric illnesses like um, schizophrenia, neurodevelopmental disease like autism. So it might be really important to try and understand how uh, interneuronal dynamics are altered in these situations. And I think duplex offers a powerful approach to be able to do so. So um, I think with that, I'm open for any questions or remarks. And um, then uh, the floor is all Simon's. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for this. This is uh, such interesting results that you um, that you showed here, and and it's really beautiful to see how you can image really the different populations in um, in such a way and really dissect out like. Sorry, sorry, I let. The person up and it was a mistake so um so uh yeah it's 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 really beautiful to see um you know the the activity and how you can dissect out different populations i think this will help so much um in um knowing how different type of populations um, are active in different states um and um also probably in the future like behaving animals, fear conditioning, I don't know, all kinds of. So, so this is really wonderful and, and a great, um, and a great tool, uh, for neuroscience. And, um, yeah, you've, you've alluded a little bit in the different roles of the inhibitory interneurons. It's, it's really interesting how interneurons play such a, a different role at the same time point. Um, do you think, this is um, a very unique characteristic of uh, interneurons, of these interneurons. And do you expect, or would you say that this is really important for, you know, precision of information uh, transfer in, in the wake state? And, mm -hmm. and, you know, because this will help us also to model maybe different neural net, artificial neural networks and so on. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I think that's a brilliant question. And yes, that's probably where the science is headed. So the other aspect that I didn't touch on is uh, we also have spatial information on this kind of uh, dynamics. So uh, 
it might be that it's not only uh, an aspect of when the interneurons are firing or suppressed, but also where or how far apart their connections lie. So to be able to model uh, an entire microcircuit dynamics, if we have a clear picture on both the temporal and spatial aspect of inhibition, I think we will get a more complete picture of uh, when and where these interneurons actually fire to regulate the activity of, to modulate the activity of uh, the output neurons. So, and of course, uh, I should also mention that with uh, increasing, um, uh, you know, transcriptomic data, we are now able to see that there are very many flavors of these interneurons. So they do not belong in a single category, and there are subpopulations and sub subpopulations, and it just becomes so difficult to have a, a unanimous uh, understanding. So they they are not of one kind; they are extremely heterogeneous, and it's probably in different uh, different behavioral context that each interneuron works, or maybe they all work, but they are more sp uh, spatially or temporally uh, differentially uh, recruited uh, by even the same behavioral uh, paradigm. And I think uh, with these indicators, you get that kind of both tempor temporal and spatial information. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm very curious to see in different disease models how if there is a baseline difference already, you know, let's say autism, uh, schizophrenia, you know, all these different um, type of um, disease models, if there would be maybe a difference detectable already in the baseline and um, maybe, you know, yeah, this will enable us to, to, um, see at a larger scale what is happening and it's it's very important so yeah thank you are, are you planning on maybe looking at different disease models next yes i i do and uh, but then i know that it's extremely challenging there are a lot of uh, uh great labs that are already pursuing in that direction and uh, we do have some technical limitations as well we are trying to address with these indicators they are not foolproof um, so, that, so we want to be able to address their limitations before we can uh, go into full-fledged disease studies, but definitely that's where my interest lies. So, um, maybe Simon's ready for his... Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, thank you, uh, Ganesh and Madhu for or you part of the talk. So here I'm going to take it over and, and we, we saw a lot of data around visual cortex um, and I'm, uh, I will mostly describe data uh, acquired in the hippocampus, which is a subcortical brain areas that every mammal, human and mouse and monkeys, and they all have, uh, it's, it's highly important for um, memory, episodic memory, when you try to remember uh, the last time you went to the beach and or enjoy an ice cream. Um, it's also one of the uh, key brain region that is impacted in, in Alzheimer disease um, and uh, essential for spatial navigation. Uh, so the so you can I'm on slide 35. Uh, on slide 36, I'm I'm going to introduce two different technologies that um, use uh, voltage sensors. Uh, the one I've I've used from Madhu and Ganesh Varnam, so which is the red shifted voltage indicator. And this technology 
uh, is different from the previous one that you have seen so far. This one doesn't give you single cell resolution, but this one can give you access to um, transmembrane electrical measurement uh, from a specific cell type in a 3D moving mice, whereas the previous uh, data that have been shown have been all acquired in head restrained animal. Uh, and therefore, in this case, because it's fiber optic based, you can let the animal explore or um, live in its uh, fully ecologically relevant uh, behavioral repertoire uh, and study the brain dynamics in the minimally invasive way. And what I'm showing you here is the uh, a recording that I've been performed in the mouse um, foraging in the open space. Uh, and the recording is performed in the hippocampus. Um, and what you see on the bottom right panel um, is two type of plots that show the in, in the x-axis the time, which is in minutes. So it's a more than one hour long recording, which is also one of the advantage of this technology. You can record for a very long time, whereas um, single cell head restrained uh, voltage recording is usually limited to a few few minutes, few tenths of minutes. Um, and here you see two different uh, plot on top of each other, and you can see an alternation of signal um, from the bottom. It's highly uh, a strong signal in the theta uh, band, which is a frequency band that is specific to the hippocampus when um, any type of mammal with the hippocampus is running or walking in an in a environment. And when the, you stop walking, you go into a lower uh, frequency state, which is known as a delta band frequency, uh, limited below four hertz. And you can see the mouse is alternating between running and resting. And that's exactly what you can pick up with this, uh, what I would call optical uh, EEGs, um, alternation of these two uh, frequency band, which is a very nice validation of, of what you can now do as a, as a electrical uh, type of recording, but perform optically using voltage sensor. Uh, I'm not going into the details of the uh, optical system on the left. Uh, if you have any question, feel free to ask. The um, on the slide 37, I'm I'm showing a comparison between uh, the old slew of voltage uh, indicators that exist uh, right now and then one of the latest published. There you can see ours, Asimion, Varnum, Pace, and Pacer. Um, and this plot summarizes you that. The, as of today, the sensor that we, uh, Madhu and Ganesh have been able to, to design and come up with are, are the best uh, in the world. Uh, you can see they are all ranked in the left panel is the sensors that are negative, have a negative priority, meaning the, the spike is uh, negatively deflected down and ACE and Varnum are, are the best at, at picking up the uh, change in signal uh, due to a, a single action potential. Uh, on the and next, just right next to it, you have the positive priority uh, Javis. And here again, you can see that pace is the by far the best uh, at uh, picking up a single action potential effect on the transmembrane potential. And the right uh, double panels uh, is the same type of plot, but now it's a train of spikes. Um, it's especially important to select your voltage sensor based off uh, bursting activity or spiking because. Some brain region and cell type are highly bursting. Um, the hippocampus is one brain region where you can find a lot of um, cells that have high uh, spiking rate. Um, so what, what, what you see and what I've been described is we have a set of four different voltage indicators of two different uh, colors, two greens, two red. And for each color, we have two different priorities. And as has been described before, you can multiplex 
either combine two different polarities within the same color or do dual color imaging. And this is an, exp an experiment that I've been done in the, um, in the visual cortex from two different cell type, uh, the same cell type that I've been described by Madhu, but this type, instead of leveraging the dual polarity uh, duplex system, we use uh, the uh, dual color. And what is nice is you can now have um, several dozens of, of neurons uh, genetically identified so you know exactly which cell type it is. And see, especially on the, on the top, you can see this blinking is, you can study the type of clustering or spike time independencies between neurons, uh, something that uh, before this technology appeared uh, couldn't be done. Um, then this is another uh, set of experiment leveraging the capability of uh, uh, multiplexing the uh, colors. Uh, and in this case is studying in the dorsal hippocampus of uh, head restrained um, animal um, undergoing different uh, behavioral state transition, resting and running. You can see the speed on the top. Um, this is the color, uh, color map. And uh, you can see example traces of, of two different uh, class of neurons. Both of them are excitatory, uh, and but the 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 specificity is that they they are both excitatory neurons from the dorsal hippocampus, but they are projecting to different cortical areas. Uh, one is the prefrontal cortex, um, ACC anterior singular cortex, uh, which is known to be important for uh, cognition, motivation, planning. Uh, the other one is is anteroanal cortex. Um, and this one is, is um, a major, uh, uh, play a major role in spatial navigation. It's the, the location of uh, the renown uh, grid cell that give rise to the play cell. Uh, both of them have, have been awarded the Nobel Prize in 2013. Uh, and those cells are essential for spatial navigation. They give you a spatial map of, of your environment. So that's how the brain constructs uh, this uh, spatial map. Um, and what you what is interesting, and you can directly see it from the raster plot under all the traces, the green population, the one that projects to the internal cortex, start increasing their firing rate specifically at the at the uh, running period. Whereas the, the one that projects in the internal cortex uh, doesn't seems to be affected by this uh, uh, transition, uh, state transition. Um, in the next slide, uh, slide number 40, you can see the quantification across many fields of use and more than 150 cells. Um, and the statistics stay the same where you can see on the, the top plot in white is the speed and you can clearly see the mass is undergoing um, a running transition. And it's, uh, precisely at the, at the transition, you see the excitatory neuron from the dorsal hippocampus that project to the anteroanal cortex increase their firing rate. Um, and the right panel is the uh, statistical quantification. You can see the red, um, the, the red histogram is perfectly aligned with the shuffle, meaning there is no effect whatsoever, whereas the green histogram is right shifted. There is an increase in firing rate, uh, in firing rate by 1.5 to two, two-fold increase. So this is one example of, of uh, a new type of experiment that can be done uh, by multiplexing two uh, colors, two different colors of, of uh, voltage indicator. And now I'm going to show you uh, another example how you can multiplex using the same color green, green sensor, but with different polarities. And in this case, it's also in the dorsal hippocampus, but from two different classes of neuron, one excitatory, one inhibitory. And I recorded simultaneously the local field potential. So the electrical coding 
since 1930 in Hansberger. Um, so almost 100 years ago, um, all basic and clinical science have relied on electrical recording. Uh, maybe you have been fa you are familiar with the EEG recording, ECOG recording uh, that is performing human. Uh, the the big unknown on this uh, type of signal recorded from the brain is that you have no idea which cell type contributed to uh, to the LFP. And so by simultaneously recording the LFP and the uh, optical signal from a specific cell type, you can now uh, start addressing question um, as to whether a given cell type will induce a, this uh, given signal deflection in the LFP and, and which cell type will be actually important for, let's say, a disease. Disease study, you can um, start narrowing down on which cell type you should uh, study the molecular pathways and design therapeutic targets. Um, so in this plot, you can see on the left the surgical approach and uh, uh, how the LFP and, and the cell uh, are where they are localized with uh, all the, I think, up to 30, close to 30 neurons uh, detected simultaneously in the same brain region. Uh, and on the right part, you see the time traces. On top, you have the LFP uh, theta power. Uh, again, as I explained before, theta is, is a link with uh, increase in locomotion. You can see an increase at the end of the recording of, of theta power, which match with the increase in, in speeds. Um, it's uh, the other color bar on the bottom. And then all the single time traces uh, sometimes recorded. And now, because you have access to you have access to two types of information with voltage as compared to calcium. And, uh, first is the spiking, as we discussed before, but another type of information that is highly uh, relevant for uh, in neuroscience is the subsocial, which gives you a lot of information regarding the synaptic input. Um, and, and here the, the analysis goes as follows. You, you extract the theta uh, band frequency from the subsocial activity in the LFP, which is some kind of ground truth canonical uh, signal. And you look at the same exact theta frequency for each cell type, uh, excitatory and inhibitory. So inhibitory class is the somatostatin neurons. Excitatory class are uh, the excitatory neurons that project to the anterior cortex. And you look at the, um, the spiking detected from those two classes of neurons, and at which phases the spikes occurs with respect to the, to the theta oscillation, either extracted from the LFP, uh, which is the, the bottom uh, summary uh, polar histogram on the on the right, or from this uh, the cell uh, on theta oscillation, which is the top plot. And the the main insight here is that whereas each cell will tend to fire at the same phase of the its own theta oscillation, as compared to the to the LFP, the ongoing brain tissue electrical state activity, only the excitatory neurons uh, will be firing at a specific phase, which is 180 degree phase shifted um, with respect to the LFP, whereas the SST neuron interneurons doesn't seem to have any uh, phase locking with respect to the, LF, uh, to the LFP. Um, so that's, that's something that is very new to the field is now you can really start addressing some kind of multimodal approaches um, using electrical recording and LFP or electroencephalography EEG ground truth and look at simultaneously at the uh, optical traces from two cell types, three cell types. Um, and in the slide 43, this is a, a quick example that you can 
not only do uh, green duplex, but you can also do red duplex because we have also two red uh, voltage indicator with different polarity. And this experiment have been done in the, in the hippocampus as well. So, so now, so far, you have seen that you can do dual color green and red. You can do same color dual polarity in green, same color dual polarity in red. And so the next experiment is, is really how to combine all of them all together. Um, and this experiment is again in the hippocampus. And in this time, we use a dual camera system to split the two uh, um, uh, sense the two colors of the different sensor we have. And on the green camera, we can pick up two different uh, spiking activity. Uh, and this is the very first uh, demonstration that you can record in the awake animal the subsocial and spiking activity from three different genetically identified cell types. And this is something that will never be able to be done with calcium sensor uh, because calcium does the latest generation of calcium doesn't have this uh, dual polarity features. Um, and I'm not even talking about electrical recording. Here we, we can pick up 60 different spiking cells that would be impossible with uh, uh, in vivo uh, patch cam recording that can barely do up to eight. That's probably the record, uh, the world record. And the final slide on 45, it's a video you can see is how you can reconstruct the fully reconstruct movies. And on the top, you see the spatial representation and the blinking of all the cell and how different classes of neurons. You can see the red red population that are uh, inhibitory SST interneurons uh, seems to be blinking somehow uh, uh, in, synch in synchrony and out of phase with the green and red, uh, the two. Uh, green and blue. So, um, and the summary um, on slide 46, uh, to summarize the overall presentation that I've, uh, Madhu, Ganesh, and myself, I've given you, it's, we, we show you that we have a suite of, of new JVs that are enable single cell, single spike resolution from uh, several dozens of, of neurons simultaneously in awake behaving mice. We show you the um, this new concept of duplex recording that can be done either with green or red duplex. Uh, and this new concept enables the simultaneous recording of Rutejani from two uh, different cell types. Um, also leveraging duplex approach, we can we reveal fine-scale mutual antagonism between uh, SST and VIP interneurons in the primary visual cortex and uh, the role of different excitatory inhibitory neurons in arousal in, in the hippocampus. Um, we also show you um, dual color delta uh, data, voltage making data, that, um, and, and some new insight about the different uh, cell class contribution and projection specific extra neurons uh, during a behavioral state transition. Um, and uh, finally, we also show you the how you can use this new uh, multiplexing of, of uh, voltage recording along with uh, electrical recording approaches and better understand um, um, a type of signal that have been used in, in clinical and basic science uh, from which the origin is still to date uh, very mysterious. Um, and finally, the suite of GVR, all mutually compatible for concurrent recording of up to four different uh, uh, genetically uh, targeted cell type. Um, and um, the idea being that by leveraging all those uh, sensors simultaneously, you, you can have a much better understanding of uh, circuit dynamics in, in behaving animals.
Um, and uh, so all this work, uh, the last slide is about acknowledging all the people involved in this in this work. Um, Vince uh, Pierben uh, from Yale, uh, mentors of, of Madhu and Ganesh, uh, Mark Schitzer that have been my mentor and, and also very helpful in this uh, the last stretch of this project. Uh, all the different co-authors involved in this project and, and the funding agencies. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for presenting this um, very impressive work. And um, it's really, you know, this is so helpful because when I, for example, when I was a PhD student, I used to do wholesale uh, recordings in Joseph Ledoux's lab and, and I had the call colleague that was doing field recordings and sometimes we had completely opposite results in the same behavioral uh, or in the same you know from the same animal like we we shared sli slices and we had opposite results and you know was always okay um it's probably in field recording you just have the whole population but it would have been a way more easier, more efficient way to do things than to patch clamp each cell type. So this is so helpful and it will scale up our um, data acquisition by such a impressive rate. So this is totally will change, you know, how much we know about what the different cell types do and, and what type of behavior and, uh, it will be way more accurate. Do you think um, that the future papers that come out using this um, will contradict some of the knowledge we currently believe to have? Yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen, but I'm, I'm sure it can. It will open up new, uh, new venues and a new type of exp experimental question uh, neuroscientists can now address and. I wouldn't be surprised if some of the dogmas uh, we hold in the field uh, might be contradicted, uh, but this remains to be seen, of course. Yes, of course, but yeah, I'm I'm just <laughs> I'm looking, especially in the hippocampus. I'm really looking forward to to learn more. Are you currently working maybe on a you know biological question project right now using this that kind of can give us already an insight to, you know, what will change in our view of the hippocampus, maybe? Yeah, so there's, I'm sure actually working specifically on the extension of this technology, which is more related to uh, the fiber optic approach that gives you access to free behaving animal. Um, and so I have, uh, I'm working with a, a colleague in the lab and uh, expand this fiber optic approach to a, a dual color system so you can track in the freely behaving animal from any brain region up to uh, four different uh, cell type uh, two per fiber optic if you do multiple fiber optics simultaneously um, and give you really the the, the idea of, of how different cell type uh, interact functionally interact in the freely behaving animal and the second technology is is studying the uh, sp spatial temporal pattern of those um, um, of those dynamics from uh, 40 different cortical areas simultaneously. So you can see a lot of um, traveling waves from specific cell type going different brain region during, um, during different uh, behavioral tasks. And I think those, those two also emerging technology would be 
um, something extremely exciting for the community. Uh, but more yeah. specifically to the spiking, I think the the um, an interesting question would be related to memory and how different, uh, especially because when you think you have a, a memory recollection, this usually happens very very fast in the split second. Um, and no other technology can give you access to a, a millisecond time scale, um, no dynamic, as the memory is retrieved or uh, is recollected. Uh, and so that's something that I'm personally interested. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, also, developmental research. I'm not sure um, how well it works in the developing um, animal, but if it would, that would give us a lot of insight also, especially then later on in disease model, um, mm -hmm. you know, how integration of different neurons maybe doesn't work very well, let's say in autism and so on. Um, and then, you know, addictive states, you know, all kinds of questions could be that I, I always had could be actually finally addressed which is really exciting and then the other thing are you planning on maybe then in the future using adding on technology to maybe selectively silence um different um neuro subpopulations um uh, to then see what what happens if you if you take them out basically very specifically yeah i think madhu might have something madhu yeah. Um, oh, yes, because we do have these red shifted indicators and they can be multiplexed with uh, blue shifted channel adoptions, if that's your question. We can uh, um, optically activate and silence using pairs of, uh, uh, you know, read write tools. Um, so that's definitely a possibility. And um, uh, yes, I, I also think there's also uh, a lot of scope to combine them with gene perturbation technologies like uh, targeted um, gene manipulation and uh, maybe even uh, chemigenetic silencing. So there's definitely a lot of ways we can uh, extrapolate from these indicators. Uh, but then right now, the major um, puzzle is to uh, be able to target the four indicators to four different cell types. So that's kind of the only pressing challenge. We've been able to target them to three uh, non-overlapping cell types, but the question is how do we target them to four different cell types uh, without overlap with one another? So that's one limitation we will have to try and address. And that's uh, because of an existing limitation of uh, genetic targeting approaches and um, mice lines with uh, these driver uh, recombinases. And uh, the other, uh, one more limitation of our uh, indicator indicators is that uh, they are also subject to photo bleaching restraints. So uh, uh, we ideally cannot do continuous imaging for a very long time. Uh, they are subject to photo bleaching, which kind of reduces the SNR, the signal to noise ratio. But uh, we're also hoping to screen for more photostable sensors or use fluorescent proteins with greater photostabilities uh, to try and improve them in that regard. Does Ganesh have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are uh, very many things we can do with these indicators that were not possible before, but they're still 
uh, long ways to go. Um, so these are just kind of uh, scratching the surface of what we can do um, with these indicators to try to understand even, you know, uh, how different populations of neurons interact together, even in the superficial layers of the brain. Uh, but if you want to go deeper into the brain and understand from even more populations, uh, uh, we, we have a lot more work to do uh, in terms of both improving the indicators and also having better imaging techniques uh, that are more suited for these uh, kind of indicators. But this is already kind of pushing the boundaries of what was uh, possible uh, just a few years ago. As I, sh as I showed, um, even in voltage indicators, it was only uh, you know five or six years ago that we were uh, just able to record them in vitro in, in cultured neurons or in slices. And now we are thinking about triple population in voltage imaging in awake behaving animals. So that's a giant leap, but uh, yeah, more work has to be done. Oh, no, this is very impressive. And it's a giant leap. And if you add, let's say, different neuromodulators, agonists, antagonists, and so on to these experiments, there's so much to be learned with three populations. So uh, yeah, but Simon, did you did you want to add something? Um, actually, the your last uh, thought is will open up my, my uh, own comments is the so we, we focus today on, on voltage, but the field of uh, genetically encoded fluorescent indicator, so much broader, which now include not only GCAP and voltage, but also all the neuromodulatory sensors. Uh, you have dopamine, neuropinephrine, acetylcholine. Um, some neuropeptide now are, are, are available, um, and they, they're all mostly green, and, so, and very few, maybe dopamine sensor is red. So you can even think of, of uh, uh, of studying the role of, of uh, neuromodulation into the, the cell uh, voltage activity uh, by combining different, you know, different colors of, of between voltage and, and neuromodulatory sensor. Yeah, I was thinking about when I went to a conference, but now I forgot the name of the person I presented, that he, that, you know, in the very beginning, um, you know, we had, uh, we gained insights, like crucial insights with like the beginning of uh, neuroimaging, uh, how acetylcholine works in the, in the cortex a little bit better. But, you know, this will give us way more precise um, answers to how, you know, how drugs and neuromodulators work and what they are changing in the network. Um, mm -hmm. Just by pouring it on there, I mean, just you know, just just pour different stuff on the slice, and you will gain a lot of insights. And then compare it to different disease models, that will add up even more. But you know, we have to have probably enough fun, like you know, funding people doing it. But but mm -hmm. you know, this will reduce the cost of of gaining those insights by a scale of, you know, thousands. Because if you imagine before we had patch lamp recordings only, basically, and then we started having some neuroimaging, but still not at this precise level. 
and how many cells can you get a day like if you're really good maybe 10 cells a day and you have to pay one person to do that and now you can have three populations in one slice you know this is like such scaling up of of efficiency which i think will help a lot the field i agree with you on that and also uh, experimental mice so you're studying multiple populations in the same mouse so you're minimizing the number of mice you need to sacrifice so that's another um, yeah um, conservation yeah and if you have and one postdoc i did i had to cross indicator uh, mice with disease models so <clears throat> since they were in a different genetic background you had to kind of double cross them mm -hmm. so you know we had very little outcome of mice we could actually use and then you get very nervous <laughs> not wasting yeah. them so you know for these type of experiments it's also you know very very helpful so Yes, they'll be normalized for the same background. So, uh, yeah, w whatever the background is, it's going to be the same. So you're looking at multiple populations in a defined background. So there's little variability from the genotype of the mouse. So that's kind of uh, an added advantage. Yeah, and then if you use virus and then you try to compare different, you know, different populations, that's that's really not good because it could just be you injected a little bit more than in the other and you know it messes up your data so that's another issue with using virus injection to to express these so and also in terms of cost uh, effectiveness i think uh, one aspect which can also be a little bit of a downside is the fact that we don't need a two photon microscope so we do our recordings with wide field epifluorescence imaging and the downside is that we cannot image very deep in the tissue but then um, there are ways to go around it but uh, the uh, advantage is you don't end up spending uh, half a million in a two photon in, in a two photon setup so it's extremely easy to um, reproduce and to uh, set this up in a lab and even a, 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 yeah even with the dual polarity concept you you literally need just one channel to record from two populations so that again minimizes the need for um, more sophisticated instrumentation uh, cutting down costs yeah, yeah definitely um yeah this has so many advantages and it's such a wonderful work and i know um you probably have to go because i think we went way over the time we we agreed on <laughs> but <laughs> this is this is so interesting and you know it's 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 really um you know very helpful work <laughs> for the field and Congratulations, and I really wish um, you know, all the best for the future and keep developing these technologies. And, and um, um, it's such a great contribution. And um, yeah, yeah, I, I hope there, all there the was best. Just, there was just one question from someone on the chat. The very last oh, question. Yeah, someone, someone asked if, if there is if you ever use these uh, woodly sensitive optins along with yeah the 
what we discussed before. Um, just to answer it for him, yes, we did use these indicators with the uh, um, channeled options for uh, stimulation because um, the the red voltage indicators we've combined them from uh, with with blue shifted channeled options to uh, stimulate cells and record from them at the same time. Okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess we were kind of concluding and I also wanted to take a moment yeah. to thank Katarina and yes, the entire team at Science Society um, for choosing our paper to discuss. And um, yeah, this has been a collaborative work, as I said, and uh, we've been happy to have such a, such a wonderful team, uh, Ganesh and Simon and uh, Simon's colleagues as well. Cheng, um, who's not on the call today, as well as uh, um, our the professors, uh, Vincent Perbon and Mark Schnitzer. So um, yeah, this has been really, really exciting and challenging for um, the field. Yeah, and we're also more excited about what new things we can uh, do with this technique and uh, also getting others up to speed on using the uh, using these uh, voltage indicators and um, dual polarity uh, multiplex imaging. Um, we are uh, very big on sharing these things uh, openly to the community. Uh, so we share our voltage indicators uh, freely to the neuroscience community and they can get these indicators on Agee or uh, even reach out to us uh, via email and we'd be happy to share these indicators either as uh, you know, plasmids or uh, viruses that you can directly inject in mice and uh, also help you with uh, uh, setting up voltage imaging uh, or do data analysis. So if anyone is interested in the technique, please uh, feel free to reach out to us. And uh, also shamelessly, because Madhu and I, we both just recently started our group. We're also looking for people to join the loop, to uh, join the join the lab to do more of these uh, kind of uh, voltage imaging experiments. So, if you're interested in um, doing that, please also please feel free to reach out to us, uh, and we, we we definitely have uh, open positions in the lab for people interested. And uh, finally, thank you, uh, Katharina, for uh, having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, no, it was really an honor and pleasure. And um, yeah, feel also free to reach out to me. If you don't know the contact, I will, um, you know, um, I connect um, you with people. And um, I hope you get really uh, great people that join your lab uh, because it's really wonderful work. And I think people will love learn a lot in your labs and so good luck for everything and i wish you all the grants and <laughs> and smart people <laughs> and um thank you yeah thank you so much and maybe you know uh once you have some of you know the future work that we discussed a little bit uh you could come back maybe next year or so that would be really wonderful too we will definitely That'll follow. Be awesome. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you so much, and um, yeah, thank you everyone for coming, uh, for asking in the chat and commenting, and um, if you like discussions like this, um, we will have our club will have the next talk next week with Dr. Illich. Um, 
and he developed a way of moving obje objects with ultrasound waves. So if you feel like reminded of Star Wars, <laughs> I was when I read it, but it will be interesting talk. Uh, very different, but um, yeah, also interesting. So thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your day. It was such an honor having you. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, good luck for everything. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Katarina. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. You too. Bye. Close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.